Section twenty nine of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cherley. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four, by James Boswell. Section twenty nine. To James Boswell, Esquire. Dear Sir, like all other men who have great friends, you begin to feel the pangs of neglected merit. And all the comfort that I can give you is by telling you that you have probably more pangs to feel and more neglect to suffer. You have indeed begun to complain too soon, and I hope I am the only confidant of your discontent. Your friends have not yet had leisure to gratify personal kindness. They have hitherto been busy in strengthening their ministerial interest. Footnote. This part of this letter was written, as Johnson goes on to say, a considerable time before the conclusion. The coalition ministry, which was suddenly dismissed by the King on December 19th, was therefore still in power. Among Boswell's friends was Burke. End of footnote. If a vacancy happens in Scotland, give them early intelligence. And as you can serve government as powerfully as any of your probable competitors, you may make in some sort a warrantable claim. Of the exaltations and depressions of your mind you delight to talk, and I hate to hear. Drive all such fancies from you. On the day when I received your letter, I think, the foregoing page was written, to which one disease or another has hindered me from making any additions. I am now a little better. But sickness and solitude press me very heavily. I could bear sickness better if I were relieved from solitude. Footnote. On November 22nd he wrote to Dr. Taylor, I feel the weight of solitude very pressing. After a night of broken and uncomfortable slumber I rise to a solitary breakfast and sit down in the evening with no companion. Sometimes, however, I try to read more and more. On December 27th he wrote to Mrs. Thrale, you have more than once wondered at my complaint of solitude, when you hear that I am crowded with visits. In opem me copia facit. Visitors are no proper companions in the chamber of sickness. They come when I could sleep or read, they stay till I am weary. The amusements and consolations of languor and depression are conferred by familiar and domestic companions, which can be visited or called at will. Such society I had with Levitt and Williams, such I had where I am never likely to have it more. End of footnote. The present dreadful confusion of the public ought to make you wrap yourself up in your hereditary possessions. Footnote. The confusion arising from the sudden dismissal of a ministry which commanded a large majority in the House of Commons had been increased by the resignation on December 22nd of Earl Temple, three days after his appointment as Secretary of State, end of footnote. Which, though less than you may wish, are more than you can want, and in an hour of religious retirement return thanks to God, who has exempted you from any strong temptation to faction, treachery, plunder, and disloyalty. Footnote. News I know none, wrote Horace Walpole on December 30th, 1783, but that they are crying peerages about the streets in barrows, and can get none off. Thirty-three peerages were made in the next three years. 
Macaulay tells how this December a troop of lords, of the bedchamber, of bishops who wished to be translated, and of Scotch peers who wished to be re-elected made haste to change sides. End of footnote. As your neighbours distinguish you by such honours as they can bestow, content yourself with your station, without neglecting your profession. Your estate and the courts will find you full employment, and your mind, well occupied, will be quiet. The usurpation of the nobility, for they apparently usurp all the influence they gain by fraud and misrepresentation, I think it certainly lawful, perhaps your duty, to resist. What is not their own they have only by robbery. Your question about the horses gives me more perplexity. I know not well what advice to give you. I can only recommend a rule which you do not want. Give as little pain as you can. I suppose that we have a right to their service while their strength lasts. What we can do with them afterwards I cannot so easily determine. But let us consider. Nobody denies that man has a right first to milk the cow and to shear the sheep, and then to kill them for his table. May he not, by parity of reason, first work a horse, then kill him the easiest way, that he may have the means of another horse, or food for cows and sheep? Man is influenced, in both cases, by different motives of self-interest. He that rejects the one must reject the other. I am, etc. Samuel Johnson. London, December 24th, 1783. A happy and pious Christmas, and many happy years to you, your lady, and your children. The late ingenious Mr. Mickle, some time before his death, wrote me a letter concerning Dr. Johnson, in which he mentions... I was upward of twelve years acquainted with him, was frequently in his company, always talked with ease to him, and can truly say that I never received from him one rough word. In this letter he relates his having, while engaged in translating the Lusiad, had a dispute of considerable length with Johnson, who, as usual, declaimed upon the misery and corruption of a sea life, and used this expression— it had been happy for the world, sir, if your hero Gamma, Prince Henry of Portugal, and Columbus had never been born, or that their schemes had never gone farther than their own imaginations. This sentiment, says Mr. Mickle, which is to be found in his introduction to the world displayed, footnote, Prince Henry was the first encourager of remote navigation. What mankind has lost and gained by the genius and designs of this prince it would be long to compare, and very difficult to estimate. Much knowledge has been acquired, and much cruelty been committed. The belief of religion has been very little propagated, and its laws have been outrageously and enormously violated. The Europeans have scarcely visited any coast but to gratify avarice, and extend corruption to arrogate dominion without right, and practice cruelty without incentive. Happy had it then been for the oppressed, if the designs of Henry had slept in his bosom, and surely more happy for the oppressors. End of footnote. I, in my dissertation prefixed to the Luciad, have controverted, and though authors are said to be bad judges of their own works, I am not ashamed to own to a friend, that that dissertation is my favourite above all that I ever attempted in prose. Footnote. The author himself, wrote Gibbon, is the best judge of his own performance. No one has so deeply meditated on the subject, no one is so sincerely interested in the event. 
End of footnote. Next year, when the Lusiad was published, I waited on Dr. Johnson, who addressed me with one of his good-humoured smiles. "'Well, you have remembered our dispute about Prince Henry, and have cited me, too. You have done your part very well indeed. You have made the best of your argument, but I am not convinced yet.' Before publishing the Lusiad, I sent Mr. Houle a proof of that part of the introduction, in which I make mention of Dr. Johnson, yourself, and other well-wishers to the work, begging it might be shown to Dr. Johnson. This was accordingly done, and in place of the simple mention of him which I had made, he dictated to Mr. Houle the sentence as it now stands. Footnote. Mickle, speaking in the third person as the translator, says, He is happy to be enabled to add Dr. Johnson to the number of those whose kindness for the man and good wishes for the translation call for his sincerest gratitude. End of footnote. Dr. Johnson told me, in 1772, that about twenty years before that time, he himself had a design to translate the Lusiad, of the merit of which he spoke highly, but had been prevented by a number of other engagements. Mr. Mickle reminds me in this letter of a conversation, at dinner one day at Mr. Houle's with Dr. Johnson, when Mr. Nicholl, the King's bookseller, and I attempted to controvert the maxim, better that ten guilty should escape than one innocent person suffer, and were answered by Dr. Johnson with great power of reasoning and eloquence. I am very sorry that I have no record of that day, but I well recollect my illustrious friends having ably shown that unless civil institutions ensure protection to the innocent, all the confidence which mankind should have in them would be lost. I shall here mention what, in strict chronological arrangement, should have appeared in my account of last year, but may more properly be introduced here, the controversy having not been closed till this. The Reverend Mr. Shaw, a native of one of the Hebrides, having entertained doubts of the authenticity of the poems ascribed to Oshan, divested himself of national bigotry, and having travelled in the highlands and islands of Scotland, and also in Ireland, in order to furnish himself with materials for a Gaelic dictionary, which he afterwards compiled. Footnote. The author of Memoirs of the Life and Writings of Dr. Johnson says that it was Johnson who determined Shaw to undertake this work. Sir, he said, if you give the world a vocabulary of that language, while the island of Great Britain stands in the Atlantic Ocean, your name will be mentioned. On page 156, is a letter by Johnson introducing Shaw to a friend. End of footnote. Was so fully satisfied that Dr. Johnson was in the right upon the question that he candidly published a pamphlet stating his conviction and the proofs and reasons on which it was founded. A person at Edinburgh, of the name of Clark, answered this pamphlet with much zeal and much abuse of its author. Johnson took Mr. Shaw under his protection, and gave him his assistance in writing a reply, which has been admired by the best judges, and by many been considered as conclusive. A few paragraphs, which sufficiently mark their great author, shall be selected. My assertions are, for the most part, purely negative. I deny the existence of Fingal, because, in a long and curious peregrination through the Gaelic regions, I have never been able to find it. 
what i could not see myself i suspect to be equally invisible to others and i suspect with the more reason as among all those who have seen it no man can show it mr clark compares the obstinacy of those who disbelieve the genuineness of ocean to a blind man who should dispute the reality of colours and deny that the british troops are clothed in red the blind man's doubt would be rational if he did not know by experience that others have a power which he himself wants but what perspicacity has mr clark which nature has withheld from me or the rest of mankind the true state of the parallel must be this suppose a man with eyes like his neighbours was told by a boasting corporal that the troops indeed wore red clothes for their ordinary dress but that every soldier had likewise a suit of black velvet which he put on when the king reviews him this he thinks strange and desires to see the fine clothes but finds nobody in forty thousand men that can produce either coat or waistcoat. One, indeed, has left them in his chest at Port Mahon. Another has always heard that he ought to have the velvet clothes somewhere, and a third has heard somebody say that soldiers ought to wear velvet. Can the inquirer be blamed if he goes away believing that a soldier's red coat is all that he has? But the most obdurate incredulity may be shamed or silenced by acts. To overpower contradictions, let the soldier show his velvet coat, and the fingerlist the original of Ossian. Footnote. Why is not the original deposited in some public library? he asked. End of footnote. The difference between us and the blind man is this. The blind man is unconvinced because he cannot see, and we, because though we can see, we find that nothing can be shown. Notwithstanding the complication of disorders under which Johnson now laboured, he did not resign himself to despondency and discontent, but with wisdom and spirit endeavoured to console and amuse his mind with as many innocent enjoyments as he could procure. Sir John Hawkins has mentioned the cordiality with which he insisted that such of the members of the old club in Ivy Lane as survived should meet again and dine together, which they did twice at a tavern and once at his house and in order to ensure himself society in the evening for three days a week he instituted a club at the essex head in essex street then kept by samuel greaves an old servant of mr thrale's footnote december twenty seventh eighteen seventy three the wearisome solitude of the long evenings did indeed suggest to me the convenience of a club in my neighbourhood but I have been hindered from attending it by want of breath. December 31st. I have much need of entertainment, spiritless, infirm, sleepless, and solitary, looking back with sorrow and forward with terror. End of footnote. To Sir Joshua Reynolds. Dear Sir, It is inconvenient to me to come out. I should else have waited on you with an account of a little evening club which we are establishing in Essex Street, in the Strand, and of which you are desired to be one. It will be held at the Essex Head, now kept by an old servant of Thrale's. The company is numerous, and, as you will see by the list, miscellaneous. The terms are lax, and the expenses light. Mr. Barry was adopted by Dr. Brocklesby, who joined with me in forming the plan. We meet thrice a week, and he who misses forfeits tuppence. Footnote. I think, said Mr. Cambridge, 
it sounds more like some club that one reads of in the spectator than like a real club in these times for the forfeits of a whole year will not amount to those of a single night in other clubs mr cambridge was thinking of the tuppenny club End of footnote. if you are willing to become a member draw a line under your name return the list we meet for the first time on monday at eight i am etc samuel johnson december fourth seventeen eighty three it did not suit sir joshua to become one of this club but when i mention only mr danes barrington dr brocklesby mr murphy mr john nichols mr cook mr jodrell mr paradise mr horsley mr windham footnote i was in scotland when this club was founded and during all the winter johnson however declared i should be a member and invented a word upon the occasion boswell he said is a very clubable man when i came to town i was proposed by mr barrington and chosen i believe there are few societies where there is better conversation or more decorum several of us resolved to continue it after our great founder was removed by death other members were added and now above eight years since that loss we go on happily boswell mr croker says johnson had already invented unclubable for sir j hawkins and refers to a note by dr burney in which johnson is represented as saying of hawkins while he was still a member of the literary club sir john sir is a very unclubable man but as mr croker points out hawkins was not knighted till long after he had left the club the anecdote being proved to be inaccurate in one point may be inaccurate in another and may therefore belong to a much later date End of footnote. i shall sufficiently obviate the misrepresentation of it by sir john hawkins as if it had been a low alehouse association by which johnson was degraded johnson himself like his namesake old ben composed the rules of his club footnote rules to-day deep thoughts with me resolve to drench in mirth which after no repenting draws milton to-day deep thoughts resolve with me to drench in mirth that etc sonnets twenty one the club shall consist of four and twenty the meetings shall be on the monday thursday and saturday of every week but in the week before easter there shall be no meeting every member is at liberty to introduce a friend once a week but not oftener two members shall oblige themselves to attend in their turn every night from eight to ten or to procure two to attend in their room every member present at the club shall spend at least sixpence and every member who stays away shall forfeit threepence. the master of the house shall keep an account of the absent members and deliver to the president of the night a list of the forfeits incurred when any member returns after absence he shall immediately lay down his forfeits which if he omits to do the president shall require there shall be no general reckoning but every man shall adjust his own expenses the night of indispensable attendance will come to every member once a month whoever shall for three months together omit to attend himself or by substitution nor shall make any apology in the fourth month 
shall be considered as having abdicated the club. When a vacancy is to be filled, the name of the candidate, and of the member recommending him, shall stand in the club room three nights. On the fourth he may be chosen by ballot, six members at least being present, and two-thirds of the ballot being in his favour, or the majority, should the numbers not be divisible by three. The master of the house shall give notice, six days before, to each of those members whose turn of necessary attendance is to come. The notice may be in these words, Sir, on blank, the blank of blank, will be your turn of presiding at the Essex head. Your company is therefore earnestly requested. One penny shall be left by each member for the waiter. Johnson's definition of a club in this sense, in his dictionary, is an assembly of good fellows meeting under certain conditions. Boswell. End of footnote. In the end of this year he was seized with a spasmodic asthma of such violence that he was confined to the house in great pain, being sometimes obliged to sit all night in his chair, a recumbent posture being so hurtful to his respiration, that he could not endure lying in bed. And there came upon him at the same time that oppressive and fatal disease, a dropsy. It was a very severe winter, which probably aggravated his complaints, and the solitude in which Mr. Levitt and Mrs. Williams had left him rendered his life very gloomy. Mrs. Desmoulins, who still lived, was herself so very ill that she could contribute very little to his relief. Footnote. He received many acts of kindness from outside friends. On December 31st he wrote, I have now in the house pheasant, venison, turkey, and ham, all unbought, Attention and respect give pleasure, however late or however useless, but they are not useless when they are late. It is reasonable to rejoice, as the day declines, to find that it has been spent with the approbation of mankind. End of footnote. He, however, had none of that unsocial shyness which we commonly see in people afflicted with sickness. He did not hide his head from the world in solitary abstraction. He did not deny himself to the visits of his friends and acquaintances, but at all times, when he was not overcome by sleep, was ready for conversation, as in his best days. Footnote. December 16th, 1783. I spent the afternoon with Dr. Johnson, who indeed is very ill, and whom I could hardly tell how to leave. He was very, very kind. Oh, what a cruel, heavy loss he will be! December 30th. I went to Dr. Johnson and spent the evening with him. He was very indifferent, indeed. There were some very disagreeable people with him, and he once affected me very much by turning suddenly to me and grasping my hand and saying, The blister I have tried for my breath has betrayed some very bad tokens, but I will not terrify myself by talking of them. Ah! Priez Dieu pour moi! I snatch, he wrote a few weeks later, every lucid interval, and animate myself with such amusements as the time offers. End of footnote. To Mrs. Lucy Porter in Litchfield. Dear Madam, You may perhaps think me negligent that I have not written to you again upon the loss of your brother, but condolences and consolations are such common and such useless things that the omission of them is no great crime, and my own diseases occupy my mind and engage my care. 
My nights are miserably restless, and my days, therefore, are heavy. I try, however, to hold up my head as high as I can. Footnote. Hawkins says that this November Johnson said to him, What a man am I, who have got the better of three diseases, the palsy, the gout, and the asthma, and can now enjoy the conversation of my friends without the interruptions of weakness or pain. End of footnote. I am sorry that your health is impaired. Perhaps the spring and the summer may in some degree restore it. But if not, we must submit to the inconveniences of time, as to the other dispensations of eternal goodness. Pray for me, and write to me, or let Mr. Pearson write for you. I am, etc., Samuel Johnson, London, November twenty ninth, 1783. End of section 29. Recording by Charlie. B.C. Canada.